So welcome back to the Saving Delaware History podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Nana and Gavin about the old state house. So Nana and Gavin, could you tell us how old is the old state house? Yes. Um, well, thank you very much for having us, Maddie. Uh, the old state house, it is, of course, the historic Capitol building in Delaware. And it, the Capitol first opened in 1791. It lasted uh, as the state capital all the way until 1933 when Legislative Hall was built. And in 1792, when it was completed, the state hadn't paid their money that they owed for construction fees. So on the 3rd of May, while the final touches to the building were being added, the legislature decided to go ahead and move in and start their business. But they were interrupted by a sword-wielding commissioner and the former sheriff, John Clayton, who kicked the legislators out of the building. They left the building and they went up to Smyrna uh, to hold their, um, to, to do their business and it, to a place called uh, Thomas Hale's Tavern. And so they moved to make Smyrna the capital and move there permanently, but the Senate refused to uh, concede. So shortly after that, they did return to Dover and they resumed their residence at the State House. And John Clayton, by the way, was the brother of uh, then Governor Joshua Clayton. So Maddie, I have a little trivia question for you. And that is, uh, the last session that was held in the old state house was in 1933. Can you tell me the last topic that was discussed at the old state house? Oh, the last topic discussed at the old state house. It was 1933. Was it women's suffrage? Oh, that's so good. But it was not women's suffrage. Fine. That that's a good that's a good answer though. It was actually the repealing of prohibition. Whoa, that was still a thing in 1933. That, that was still a thing in 1933. And when they moved to Legislative Hall in 1933, what was the first item on the agenda that was discussed in the, in the, old, in the uh, Legislative Hall? Was that women's suffrage? No, that's good. That's that is a good answer. It was again prohibition. <laughs> prohibition was the last thing discussed and the first thing discussed in the in the new legislative building. And when they were discussing it, were they in favor or against? They were they they finally did vote for repealing it. But there was a lot of going back and forth because you know Delaware was a dry state. Moving on slightly from that, can you explain to our listenership the significance of the State House as the historic capital of Delaware? So the, the State House actually was the capital from when it opened in 1933, uh, sorry, 1791 till 1933. But uh, the original capital had been in the town of Newcastle. And the legislature uh, had moved down to Dover in 1777 during the revolution because they were afraid that uh, 
the British were going to attack Newcastle, which was just across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. Uh, so for 15 years, speaking of prohibition, the uh, legislature met in a couple of taverns on the green here in Dover. Uh, one was called the Golden Fleece Tavern. The other was called the George Washington. And they met there until the building was constructed, uh, which, as Nina said, opened in 1791-92. And at that point, uh, it served as the capital for about 140 years, and all kinds of business was held here. Uh, every, almost every session of the General Assembly, all kinds of topics were discussed, everything from uh, whether or not to uh, end slavery to uh, women's suffrage, as you asked about a minute ago, which was in 1920, and uh, all the way up to the Prohibition Amendments. So it was a very important place uh, where all the laws of Delaware were made in that 140-year time span. Certainly, it sounds like all the major issues were discussed there. Uh, shifting focus a little bit more towards the building itself, how has its facade and internal architecture changed over time? Well, the building has changed many times over the years. Uh, after uh, it was construction was completed in 1792, uh, it stayed that way for, for many years until 1830, when the initial addition was built onto the rear of the building. Over the years, there were other wings that were added to both sides of the building. And um, in 1870, when the state bought out Kent County's portion of the building, it was completely remodeled. And it was very interesting because people were complaining at that time in the 1870s that this building is, it's old and it's, it's ancient and, and We've, you know, it's been years since the war and we want something modern. We're moving on and we want to be progressive. Um, so they transformed the exterior uh, of the building from the Georgian style that it was to a modern Victorian style. So it stayed uh, that way up until the early 1900s. Um, and people were uh, in favor of sort of tearing the building down. By about that time, many of the state offices uh, had moved out of the building and they did want to just tear it down and replace it with a cement building. But uh, there were a lot of preservationists around and advocates for keeping the building. Um, so they did keep the building. Uh, they changed the exterior of the building from the old Victorian style. Uh, but the interior of the building was left that way all the way up until the early 1970s. And in the 1970s, uh, they decided to restore the building back to its original state in 1791. Uh, the state used uh, funds that they had, plus they used federal funds that they acquired under the National Historic Preservation Act uh, to fully restore the building to its 19, I'm sorry, to its 1791 appearance, which uh, is the building that you see today. 
really interesting. So in addition to responding to these sort of complaints and controversy over what would happen with the building itself, what functions did the building serve for society at the time? Well, as we've already talked about, it was the home of the General Assembly, uh, which is our state legislature in Delaware. Uh, But it also had a lot of other functions, too, because it was both a state building and a county building, at least for the early years uh, of its use. And it served the legislature. It also served levy courts, which is what we call our Kent County government. Uh, It also served as the courthouse, uh, because each of our three counties had a courthouse, and this was it for uh, Dover. And that was all levels of court, everything from the Justice of the Peace all the way up to the State Supreme Court. It also served as office space uh, for all state and county offices up until 1872, which Neil mentioned a minute ago, uh, when the state bought the county out, the county moved to a different building, which we today call the old Kent County Courthouse, and the state took over the building, using it still as a state government office building, even after the legislature left here in 1933. It was used as an office building until 1972, when the restoration that Nia mentioned was begun and uh, 1976, when they reopened the building as a museum, they did so just in time for the National Bicentennial commemorating the Declaration of Independence 200th birthday. Wonderful. So it sounds like that building was used for an incredible range of activities. And I know specifically it was used by the Summers family. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more upon that story? Yes. Um, as uh, Gavin had said, you know, the building had many functions. And uh, one of the offices that were in the building was the recorder of deeds. Uh, by the late 1790s, chattel slavery was on the decline uh, in Delaware. And although, even though it was on the decline, it still did not end in Delaware until the end of the Civil War. In 1797, there was a new law that went into effect about manumissions and manumission papers. That meant that slaveholders who wanted to free their enslaved people had to go through this process of of filling out paperwork and also paying money for the for the betterment of the people who they were freeing. These papers were known as manumission papers. Uh, manumit is a Latin word which means to let go of the hand. In October of 1797, an ordinary Delaware citizen, Mr. James Summers. He was a free black man. He came into the Kent County Recorder of Deeds office, uh, which was located on the first floor of the old state house. And he spoke to a gentleman by the name of Mr. Simon Wilson. And he asked him if he could um, fill out papers, some manumission papers, because he wanted to free two enslaved people. 
the two people he wanted to free, uh, we had Thomas Summers and Ruth Summers, who were five and seven years respectively. We don't know the type of deal that Mr. Summers made that uh, with the Lober family that he was allowed to manumit those two people who happened to be his two children. Um, there are a lot of people who ask the question, um, how is it that Mr. Summers was free, but his children were enslaved? It was because there was a law that said, if your mother is enslaved, all of her children are born enslaved into enslavement. So when their mother had them, she was enslaved by the Lober family. However, she was set free in a will by Mr. Lober, but the children were not. That family, um, they freed their children. They also had another children who was born outside of her enslavement, who was born free. And a few years later, all of their descendants were free because of the actions of Mr. James Summers. The story of the Summers family is particularly important today because we can see the results of it. It is a story about love. You have an ordinary man who selflessly demonstrated his deep love for his children. That act alone changed the trajectory of their lives. It put his children on the path of prosperity. And nine generations later, we still see the love and success of the Summers family and his descendants, who are oftentimes patrons of our museum. I'm sure they love coming back to hear about their ancestor. Could you they elaborate do. on exactly what he risked by trying to file those papers for his children? Well, uh, he could have been turned down. Uh, his children could have been, if, if things had not all gone in his favor, he could have lost his children and they could have had a horrible life of enslavement. And they would never have uh, been able to be part of that family, as it were. They would not be able to grow up as part of a family. He would have lost his family, members of his family. Like you said, that's truly a wonderful story of bringing a family together, even at personal risk to some of its members. Uh, along with that story, what are some of both of your favorite stories from the old state house? Well, um, not all of the stories that we tell, unfortunately, are positive stories. You know, we love to tell positive stories, but they just historically are many stories that are not so positive. And one that I think is very important is an effort uh, that was made during the Civil War to have what was called compensated emancipation. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he took office during the uh, time period, came up with this concept of paying slave owners to set their slaves free. Now, by 1860, Slavery was dying in Delaware. There were about 1,800 enslaved people. And so the federal government 
going to use Delaware as a test case for Lincoln's idea. So Mr. Lincoln contacted the uh, lone member of the House of Representatives from Delaware, a man named George Fisher, who met with Lincoln. They agreed that this sounded like a good idea. Mr. Fisher said to Mr. Lincoln something like, like, we need to bring in other people. So Mr. Fisher contacted a man by the name of Benjamin Burton, who was the largest slave owner in Delaware. He actually owned 28 people, and he was from Sussex County. He went to D.C., met with Lincoln and Fisher, and they all agreed this was a good idea. Then they brought this idea back, Fisher and Burton did, to Delaware, to the General Assembly. They joined forces with a gentleman named Nathaniel Smithers, who was a local lawyer, a big, uh, big person in the Republican Party at the time. And this is where the story gets a little bit uh, hazy because some of the sources say that the legislature actually took a vote on the bill. Some of the sources say they took a straw poll. That is to say they counted heads. And uh, either way, they discovered that the, the effort would fall short by a single vote. Uh, when they discovered that, that was pretty much the end of the compensated emancipation idea because Lincoln said, if I can't get this in Delaware, then how can I hope to get it in states with a much larger slave population? So Lincoln changed his mind. He said, okay, I will then put together a proclamation, which we know as the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, interestingly, Delaware was not impacted by that because the Emancipation Proclamation only freed slaves in states or areas in rebellion, not in states or areas controlled by the Union, which is what Delaware was. So Delaware turned down compensated emancipation after Lincoln's uh, emancipation proclamation. He had to come up with the idea of how to make that permanent because it was a war measure. So they created the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. And Delaware refused to ratify that as well. Uh, although slavery in Delaware ended in 1865, the state of Delaware didn't ratify the amendment or the 14th or 15th Amendments either until 1901, until a Republican administration took, uh, took over in Delaware. And so you could say, that Delaware, in a way, was responsible for both the idea of the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, at least in part. I was not aware of any of that. Even having just studied U.S. history, I didn't realize how significant a role Delaware had played in those uh, landmark declarations and legislations. Uh, Ms. Todd, did you have a story you wanted to share? Well, I I have so many favorite stories. I love all of the stories uh, that come out of your old state house. Uh, that's sort of like asking you to pick your favorite child. Um, you know, you, you, you love them all. Uh, and one of the reasons why I love so many of the stories in 
that we tell in the old state house is because there are stories about ordinary, everyday, hardworking people that everyone can relate to. And we talk about, even though they're ordinary people, many of them do extraordinary things. And it sort of gives us uh, the idea that even we as ordinary people have the ability to do extraordinary things and enrich the lives of other people and create history. You know, history is, everybody thinks history is created by, you know, the noble gentry or elected officials or the popular people, but history is actually created by the ordinary, everyday, hardworking people just like us and just like all of your listeners. So that's the lesson I hope they take away from this. And I hope so as well. Well, thank you for giving both for giving your time and a lot of your intellectual effort toward this podcast. I hope you all as listeners enjoyed and we'll come back to listen on the next episode on Avery's Rest.